Now we have the Emergencies Act invoked by the Prime Minister Trudeau. He promises not to violate the Charter. He's already violated it. It's in effect. Until the Parliament takes a vote, both in the Senate and the House of Commons, the Emergencies Act is in effect. Therefore, the Government of Canada has all of these extra powers, which violate the rights and freedoms of Canadians. And there's no peril, there's no insurrection, there's no war. And therefore, the intent of Section 1, which is the override, where a government can override all these freedoms and rights, the intent of that section, I was there uh, when it was written, was this was to be used in very unusual circumstances like war, insurrection, a state of peril, right? We don't have that in Ottawa today. So this should not apply, this Emergencies Act should not apply to Ottawa, even though they're trying to make it apply. And then even if Section 1 did apply, they have not demonstrably justified, which is one of the tests of Section 1, that what they're doing, the benefit is, is better than the cost. And everything is civil in Ottawa. I just came back from Ottawa. I walked the streets of Ottawa. There's no insurrection. There's no war. The state is not in peril. And I'm arguing they cannot use Section 1. And even if they could, they're not meeting the tests under Section 1. <laughs> I want to welcome you to Freedom Feature. My name is Barry Bussey, and today I have with me the Honorable Brian Peckford, who from 1979 to 1989 served as Newfoundland and Labrador's third premier. And so I want to welcome you, Mr. Peckford. It's so great to have you on this program, especially as a Newfoundlander. It's awesome. Thank you very much for having me. And of course, that's one of the reasons why I'm on here is because, um, number one, I want to keep my promise to you, even though I just came off a, a flight to Ottawa, where I spent a few days, and uh, now I'm in, in a scurry uh, of uh, hundreds of emails and scores of interview requests, and wow. I'm still writing. I just wrote a new piece this morning for my blog oh, wonderful. about the history of the Constitution from 82 to now. Right. Uh, but uh, I still want to do these kinds of interviews for different parts of Canada because I know I capture a lot of people who would not otherwise hear the message directly. Right, exactly. Now, I just want to ask you quickly, as the lone surviving author of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, what were your expectations for this new charter and why did you think it was so necessary? We had gone through a period since 1867 when the country became formed as Canada, mm -hmm. the, the BNA Act of 1867, right through until 1960 with uh, an unwritten Bill of Rights. We didn't have a Charter of Rights or a Bill of Rights in law in the sense that it was written down. Right. What our charter or our individual rights and freedoms meant was that if an individual uh, became uh, embroiled in what they thought was a violation of their rights and freedoms, they had to look to the British common law, unwritten British common law. And so uh, that, you know, is a bit of a messy situation, especially in light of being on the continent where you had a, a much larger country, which had a Bill of Rights in 1791. Mm. The United States became a country in 1776, and in 1791, they had a Bill of Rights. Right. Uh, we became a country in 1867, and we didn't have a Charter of Rights until 1982. So uh, one can see we had 114 years there of, of no written uh, Bill of Rights. So this is why it was so important. And a lot of people recognize this, especially after 1960, when John Diefenbaker brought in the Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. But the Bill of Rights was an act of parliament. Right. 
and it only applied to federal jurisdiction. So it wasn't a national document, it was a federal document. Now, Canadians have a big job separating the word national from federal, but because we're not that familiar with our constitution, but we are a federation. We're not a unitary state, and therefore, the, the country's made up of units, provinces, and the federal government, like Australia, like Germany, like the United States, where all the powers are not centered in one place. Right. They're separated between the federal government and the provincial governments. That's very important. So that Bill of Rights, while Mr. Diefenbaker did identify the chief freedoms and rights that individuals need to have, uh, it was in a federal act, and therefore it wasn't complete. And that's why from 60 to 1981, there was a lot of talk about uh, taking that Bill of Rights and putting it into something that was, number one, more permanent, because the federal act could be changed by the whim of any majority government, putting it somewhere beyond uh, an act of parliament, making Mm -hmm. it more permanent, and yet having it in writing as well. And so that led to the Constitution Act of 1982, which included a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So that's sort of a a brief history of it. Unfortunately, because the Americans had that Bill of Rights since 1791, their culture is more grounded in individual rights and freedoms, individuality, than is Canada's. We only have had a 40-year experience of it. And our 40 years has come at a time when the jurisprudence of, of, of North America, and of the world for that matter, was moving more away from interpreting the Constitution as read to more as the Constitution as it's supposed to so-called evolve. And um, that, that's hurt the uh, Constitution Act of 1982 and the Charter. And mm-hmm. I, I write about that this morning on my blog again. In other words, the uh, Constitution Act of 1982 has been usurped, has been usurped by governments uh, in trying to uh, misinterpret Section 1, which was an override. And at the same time as that was happening, the courts were becoming more elastic in how they interpreted the plain meaning of the Constitution. I'm an originalist. The mm. Constitution was written. If it needs to be changed, then we've got to go through a big process to change it. Okay, right. And that was deliberate, too. So it'd be permanent and make it difficult to change. But if you want to change, there's a mechanism to changing it. And unless you do that, then you must interpret the Constitution as it is written. You must interpret the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as it is written. And mm-hmm. ours is only 40 years old, so there shouldn't be all that much change in a few generations. Right. But, but there is. There is. Uh, and, but and, that's and, the whole history of it. Well, and, and just on that for a minute, it's great to hear you articulate the originalist position, because right now in the law schools across the country, that is certainly not something that's being taught. It's the whole idea of, they call it social justice. You know, we got to reinterpret the Constitution in light of the modern age. The current Chief Justice, for example, stated very clearly that he doesn't read the Constitution as it's written. He reads it in light of the times in which we live. That's very sad. That's very sad because he's, he, he doesn't have that liberty, really. Mm. I mean, he was appointed judge to interpret the Constitution as written. That's what he is there to do, or she is there to do. Beverly McLaughlin also really started this, this trend in a big way. The living tree, it's called in law, right. I think. The living tree theory, where it grows with the, with the, with the society. And, and therefore, what, what happens in that kind of case, which the judges don't seem to recognize, is that principles get lost. 
Right. And principles are everlasting. Mm. For example, in the Constitution, which everybody's afraid to announce now, I'm the only one in Canada that I have heard say that the Constitution begins not with Section 1, but begins with the words, whereas this country is founded upon the principles of the supremacy of God and the rule of law, colon. Right. Colon is after that, which, which means everything flows after that. And therefore, the Constitution and the Charter is supposed to be interpreted in light of, in the context of the supremacy of God and the rule of law. And, and look, I put that in my essay this morning. I'm going to push this. I know where we are in a crisis right now, but I'm pushing that because we have to get back to the original intent. And I'm still alive. I mean, it's not that long ago. If there's somebody still alive who was there at that constitutional conference, I'll be 80 this year and I'm still here. And I know what the intent, for example, of section one was that so-called override, which they've misused and abused like they've abused other parts of of the charter. So I insist that we go back and read the charter and interpret the words that are in the charter. Right. And I think there certainly is a lot of growing opinion with respect to that. And I'm certainly one of them as well. And I wanted to just go back to the supremacy of God and the rule of law. And how do you see those clauses, as you say, they are in that context that the charter is to be read. The, the Supreme Court, of course, has said they basically ignored the supremacy of God clause and then said, okay, yeah, well, yeah, the, the rule of law we agree with. But how do you see, for example, the, the uh, supremacy of God? Well, I see it that the judges have an obligation to try to interpret that. And it seems to me within the jurisprudence of the United States and of North America, it's hard not to come to the conclusion that it means that we possess certain inalienable rights, right? I think that's how uh, that flows directly from that. And of course, as mentioned in the Federalist Papers and in the Constitution of the United States that, you know, we have certain inalienable rights that are given to us by God. And so the supremacy of God seems to me to speak directly to that. And the, what the judges have been doing, the way they evade it is ignore it. Right. Right? Instead of hitting it head on and making some uh, sensible interpretation therefrom and then going on with their rulings, right, in the context of that, they've tried to ignore it and they're being getting away with it. And thankfully, I'm still alive and there are still people like you around uh, who read the Constitution and read the Charter and know that, you know, Ted Cruz is one of the great uh, uh, exponents of the original theory in the United States of the Constitution. This man, you know, uh, was a clerk of the Harvard Law Review. Mm -hmm. Uh, This man, you know, topped his class. He's been before the Supreme Court of Canada three or four times, and now he's an elected senator in the United States. There are many, many more like him. It's just because he's been more prominent, if you will, because he's in the news all the time that I mention his name. But there are many more that are just as, uh, what shall I say, cultured and intellectually rigorous in their approach to the Constitution as Ted Cruz. So that's what the supremacy of God means to me. Mm-hmm. And the rule of law, by the way, in Robert Bork's book, Coercion Virtue, which I have here right next to me, which I keep mm-hmm. by me all the time. Right. Robert Bork, who was denied a, a position on the Supreme Court of the United States for petty right. reasons, right? right. Uh, was, a, was a solicitor general of the United States, right? And a great appellate judge in the United States has written a great mm-hmm. book on the, all of this. And he's an originalist too. 
And rule of law, by, by the rule of law in here, in his book, for example, he talks about the rule of law means permanent values. Mm. That's why we have a constitution. So mm. we have permanence. You can't have a country without having a permanent document. Otherwise, otherwise you're, you're back into a disorganized situation and, and there's rule of the mob. Right. And, and of course, the um, legal members of the academy here in Canada would look at you and say, well, Mr. Peckford, you're re relying on a lot of the American jurisprudence and the American thought with respect to interpreting the Constitution. But we're in Canada here now, and we don't look at it that way. Well, I would say to them, uh, if you look at the Supreme Court of Canada decisions over the years, there's an awful lot of references to the American jurisprudence. This is law. This is constitution, which knows no boundaries in the sense of how you interpret a constitution where you have country and boundaries. So they pick and choose. It's cherry pick. It's big, big cherry pick. Because even if you read the, the Supreme Court of Canada decision where they turned down Trudeau for his unilateral attempt to get yeah. a patriation, they referenced the Americans' uh, jurisprudence. Right. So it's a selfish and, what shall I say, cowardly way to look at it because they themselves reference jurisprudence not only in the United States but the United Kingdom and other places when it's convenient for them right. and then try to leave it out when it's not convenient so I smash them down right okay I got gotcha. you and uh, I I think we need to and I know in my own writing uh, the supremacy of God is something that I want to be uh, coming back to again now let's go to the situation we find ourselves today 40 years just about when the charter was <laughs> enacted or the the queen came over she signed it into law and now we have the emergencies act invoked by the prime minister trudeau uh, he promises not to violate the charter now what is your take on this situation he's already violated it because once the cabinet of canada under the way the emergency act reads it's in effect mm -hmm. and all the parliament is doing when it meets both the house of commons and the senate if you read the emergencies act it is to confirm or revoke. Right. So until the parliament make, takes a vote, both in the Senate and the House of Commons, the Emergencies Act is in effect. Right. Okay. And therefore, the, the government of Canada has all of these extra powers where it has the power to go in and do a whole bunch of things which violate the rights and freedoms of Canadians. And remember, even if Section 1 applied, and there's no peril, there's no insurrection, there's no war, and therefore, the intent of Section 1, which is the override, where you, a government can override all these freedoms and rights, the intent of that section, I was there uh, when it was written, okay, mm -hmm. was this was to be used in very unusual circumstances like war, insurrection, a state of peril, right? We don't have that in Ottawa today. So this should not apply, this Emergencies Act should not apply to Ottawa, even though they're trying to make it apply, okay? Mm -hmm. And then even if Section 1 did apply, they have not demonstrably justified, which is one of the tests of Section 1, that what they're doing, the benefit is, is better than the cost. And everything is civil in Ottawa. I just came back from Ottawa. I walked the streets of Ottawa. It was civil. Truckers were out serving food, not only to their own families, but the citizens who are coming by to, to wish them well. Uh, mm -hmm. there, there's, no, there's no insurrection. There's no war. The peril of the state is not in peril. And they're imposing, they're trying to impose and fear on the people to try to get them to, because the majority of people are not in Ottawa, to, right. to believe that this is an insurrection and therefore they can use Section 1. And I'm arguing they cannot use Section 1, and even if they could, 
they're not meeting the tests under Section 1. The prime minister has gone out of his way, it seems to me, to really inflame the situation by his rhetoric against the truckers and also anyone who has a different opinion than himself. It makes a lot of people scared. Like, for example, I was just reading in the news today of some individuals who gave money to the truckers. The CBC has reported on them, asked them, trying for them to justify as to why they gave money to the truckers. There's a lady who lost her cafe now because there was so much online hate. People were threatening to come and throw bricks through her her cafe in Ottawa. She's closed it down in order to protect um, the uh, her workers. I just saw that Chess Crosby was approached by CBC because he made a big donation to the truckers. And he basically told the uh, reporters to buzz off because he had every right to do so. What is your sense of what's happening in the mood in this country? I said it in my essay this morning. The Constitution is under serious attack right now. Canada's Constitution destruction began in 1982 when we passed that act and passed the charter because right from day one, people were trying to undermine it. They tried to undermine me and my role in that Constitution. Books were written denigrating what Newfoundland had done, saying we were, were not a part of that whole deal at all. When it was our proposal which broke the, the impasse that led to the Constitution Act in the beginning. And it was not until 19, 2012 when I wrote my book and produced the documents proving what I was saying that I dispelled all these myths that are still out there on websites. And then along with that, with that political effort to destroy what had happened in 82 and who did it and how it happened came this jurisprudence of reinterpreting the constitution in different ways, not reading the words of the constitution. So we have had a gradual destruction of the constitution culminating in what's happening today. And the only difference now is that the silence is not there as it was after 82 and after 2012, when I exposed it, the truckers, have risen to the cause. And now we have an opportunity to rewrite some wrongs here. But the, cha the, the, the challenge is now with this emergency act, the, the prime minister has upped the ante, right? And, and another step towards trying to destroy the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That's what's at stake here. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the Constitution of Act of 1982 is being destroyed before our eyes. The destruction of the Constitution is happening in real time in Ottawa today. Are you at all concerned? Uh, I mean, you have been very outspoken with respect to uh, the importance of the trucker movement, uh, the convoy. Are you concerned at all with respect to the Prime Minister's retribution against you because of your outspokenness? You know, one, one hopes it won't go to that, but I can, I can say without getting into too much detail because you're just in a very touchy area, yep. but I can say that uh, my outspokenness over the years and when I was premier led to me having to have security for good reason. Things happened to me and threats uh, on my life uh, at the time uh, and, uh, and bugging uh, apparatus uh, which were there. Somebody put them there and we don't know who. And so therefore, obviously I am concerned, uh, but I, it will not stop me. To get back to people like Mr. Crosby, it's unfortunate, right? That 
people who have are citizens of this country and have a right to contribute to whatever they see as a cause that they want to support in a democratic country, that they get exposed by the media and somehow questioned as to their integrity because they had the right to contribute to a given organization. This is, and, and CBC is part of that now, by even raising it, you think they would just ignore it because they know this man has rights and freedoms like everybody else. And especially in his case, because he has a partner who is involved in the judiciary. This is a dastardly act by, by our national broadcaster to even raise that. You think they'd have enough common sense and, 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 and prudence about them to know that this is something that a person has a right to do as an individual as an individual mm. of this country. And I'm very proud of Mr. Chess Cosby. I'm honored that he, as a citizen of this country, would allow his name to go forward and to contribute to causes like this. It's, it's too bad there are not more Canadians who are doing likewise, both, and Newfoundlanders as well. Here it is, we have a constitutional right, a charter right to protest, to voice our opinion, uh, to have free expression, free speech, and yet, we see this uh, attack being made against those who did so, supporting the truckers. And like you pointed out, there's been nothing, and, and I was up there uh, a couple of times. In fact, I was there just this last Sunday when you spoke, and you so well put it about the importance that Canada owes a debt of gratitude to these truckers, as you put it. How is it that we could be in this kind of situation uh, where... Canadians have the opportunity to protest, and yet our own government has tried to demonize these protesters. It's happened, like I said, it started in 1982 and even started before that. The, the denigration of our democracy generally, because I was talking this morning about the denigration of our constitution since 82, right. but the denigration or the decline of our democracy began back in the 1960s, it seems to me. When we, when the 60s was a time of, you know, change and turbulence in the United States and in Canada, and new ideas coming forward and, and, and so on. And it could be, you know, the sexual revolution or the female revolution or this revolution or that revolution. But out of that came a gradual decline in the role of parliament, for example, in Canada, as the Canadian parliament suddenly shifted, its power went from the parliamentary committees and the MP and the resolutions of the parliament to the cabinet of Canada first. We had a lot of strong ministers for a while. It was during your time and my time, mm -hmm. John Crosby or Don Mazinkowski right. or Alan McKechn or mm -hmm. Jean Chrétien even, or Lalande in Quebec and some out west, like I said, John Don Mazinkowski or Lloyd Axworthy out of Manitoba. And then right. it gradually moved from being just strong ministers to being a larger prime minister's office. Mm. And now the prime minister's office with the Privy Council has looked 16 or 1700 employees. That's on top of the 7,000 deputy ministers and the assistant deputy ministers and other executives in the, in the country. Why do they have all of that when he's got these deputy ministers? Because mm. the power shifted all the way from the parliament, all the way from the cabinet. Nothing happens now unless the prime minister agrees to it. Right. You know, it's a, it, it's a presidential system without a shot being fired, still called a parliamentary democracy, a British parliamentary democracy. That's what's happened. At the same time, the law schools and the schools generally, right, became mm -hmm. more, what shall I call it, uh, excessively liberal and progressive in their approaches to life and their approaches to the world, 
right? Mm -hmm. And so we got into a situation where uh, almost anything was possible to be learned. There were no principles. There was no rigor, right? There was no structure to our curriculum. Everything was wide open. And then now they started to question history. You can knock down a Sir John A. Macdonald statue in Victoria. Even the, the city council did it. Yeah. But yeah. yet you can't have a truck drive to Ottawa without saying that you're doing something illegal. I mean, what has this country's come to when a city council can destroy one of our icons of our history and at the same time a trucker is doing something wrong by driving to Ottawa and protesting uh, about laws which violate his rights and freedoms. This is a very dangerous time in our history when those two things can be juxtaposed against one another to see just where we are. So we've seen a gradual decline of our democracy. A guy by the name of Donald Savoy in the University of Moncton wrote a book two years ago called right. The Decline of Democracy, right? Mm -hmm. The Disintegration of Our Institutions. And he, he, uh, he tabulates factually with evidence all of these things that I'm saying, proving that our democracy has been in decline for quite some time. And it was like, this was really a ripe when the pandemic so-called came, this was ripe time for the governments to be able to exercise additional powers without fearing the population because the population had morphed into believing that the prime minister can do everything and the premier can do anything and that the assemblies and the legislatures were no longer important. That's what's happened in this country. You know, it's quite fascinating when the prime minister made the announcement of the Emergencies Act, unlike what Churchill would have done, Churchill would have went into the House of Commons and used it because he said it would be, uh, I remember uh, reading about Churchill about how important he felt was to make these important announcements in front of the Commons. And here, this prime minister is not interested in that. He's either going to do his uh, press release in front of his cottage, or he's going to do it in some kind of uh, hotel room or wherever, but not in front of the Commons. And it seems to me that there's a lack of respect of the legislature itself. In fact, he just even walked out this week when he didn't like some of the questions. You know, you just bring up a number of really important points. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned Churchill and that question, that issue of coming to the Commons. That's an unbelievably important historical reference to make because it's so applicable to the day. Nobody has made that uh, connection before in the scores of interviews I have. You're the first one to, to reference that and, and, and rightly so and significantly so because it really highlights what I just said about the diminution of the power of the parliament uh, from the time of Churchill to now. And, and, and it does a disservice to our democracy. Our democracy is failing because of that, because mm -hmm. it's all based upon, right? And you go back to Montesquieu, you go back to Mill, right? Yeah, you come up through the, the theorists on all of this. It was the parliament, right? The representatives of the people, you know, from the Magna Carta to, through to, you know, the various revolutions in England leading to more and more power to the people right. and less and less power to the monarch. It was more and more power to the people through the parliament. Right. It was more and more power, right? Power to the people through their elected representatives. Mm -hmm. And that's what Churchill was talking about uh, that you referenced, that he had to come to the people's house because that's where the power, ultimate power lay. Right. This is where now it doesn't lie there anymore. It lies at the, and he can get outside of his cottage and do a press release. We are going to enact 
the Emergencies Act, rather go into Parliament and announce what the government was going to do, shows just how disrespectful even the Prime Minister is of his own Parliament. It strikes me that this crisis is perhaps a great opportunity for us as a country to reevaluate the power of the Prime Minister's office. If there's ever been anything to point to the fact that we are in desperate need of constitutional revision. And it's basically, it's it's not in, like, I mean, the office of prime minister is not even in the constitution. This is a mere tradition. This is a mere development that has occurred and we've accepted it. But I think as Canadians, we need to get back to the parliamentary democracy that you so rightly point out. There, there's no, no question about that. Uh, and uh, talking about the constitution and changing the constitution, isn't it interesting today that even the premiers of seven provinces have had to come out and say, we don't need the Emergency Act. We have exist enough existing powers. And isn't it interesting that it's now seven? How many provinces do you need to change the constitution? Seven. Seven with 50%. Right? The yes. only difference now is, is that the, the culmination of the population of those seven is 48%, when oh, okay. you need 50% under the, the, to change the constitution. But it's pretty close. Yeah, it is it's pretty, pretty close. close. The irony of it all, the irony of it all, even these smaller provinces are beginning to see, even though they've broken the constitution themselves, right. they've broken the charter, right? But even they see now that, that this has gone, and there will be a reckoning for all those premiers. There yep. will be a reckoning. I still believe that there are judges around, especially after all this debate that we're having, right. that the judges are going to have to reevaluate how this charter has been interpreted by the lower courts before they make a final adjudication. You know, I've got my own legal lawsuit out there for that right. same very reason. Exactly. I, I still believe there is a chance. Now, don't ask me how big a chance. Perhaps <laughs> it's only 50-50. But I still think there may be a chance to get enough appeal court judges on side. That's Court of Appeal in the provinces right. and the Supreme Court of Canada on side to recognize that what is happening is the destruction of our constitution and thereby the destruction of our country as a parliamentary democracy and that right. they're going to readjust readjust their thinking as to how far they have slid away from the original meaning of the of the charter which is only 40 years old you know i hope they have a paul on the road to damascus uh, experience <laughs> whereby they get an overflow of instinct and sense of purpose yes. that what is happening here we've got to we've got to readjust this so yeah. i'm still hoping that will happen but there's no question that the way the prime minister and the way the ministers the way the government has been acting over the last number of years and the premiers have been acting mm -hmm. that they are acting outside of the constitutional conventions customs and even wording in the constitution act I, I know you, you're you limited on time, and I don't want to take more than uh, you have been so gracious to give me, but I just have a couple of quick questions. Number one, what as you look back over your career, what do you consider your most proud accomplishment in your time of service? I, I would say, I guess I would have to say that the, the constitutional thing would be the most important, right? as history has now has shown. Mm -hmm. you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, because I never thought this crisis would ever happen, yes. I might have said... Newfoundland's flag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I might have said Newfoundland's flag even over the Atlantic Accord. Right, okay. even over the Atlantic Accord, primarily because it meant that we were, for the first time in our history, a people. Right, our okay. own people with our own symbols. Right, right, and our own traditions. Mm. 
and then perhaps I would have put the Atlantic Accord second, uh, even though perhaps uh, from an economic and financial point of view, it should be number one. But from a fundamental philosophical point of view, in its broadest sense, perhaps the flag would stand uh, stand over it. But the two would have to perhaps be unified. You'd have to give it one A and one B or something, right? <laughs> in some kind of thing. I did think at the time, uh, and I'm, I'm very saddened by this, and I think about it almost every morning I get up. Mm. I'm very saddened by the fact that I thought I had changed Newfoundland's perception of themselves. Mm. I thought I had caused, as I said in many speeches during the time, a revolution through the year, of, through you know, between our ears of how we viewed ourselves and our history and our future. Mm -hmm. But the way the Atlantic Accord has been eviscerated, both by Newfoundland governments and the federal government, the way the principles of the Atlantic Accord have been abused, that leads me into a very sad situation as it relates to that. Mm -hmm. And I'm very saddened by that. Uh, but, but nevertheless, uh, the flag is still there. Uh, the Accord is there in its principles that people will read and see how it was abused. Uh, and, and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the Constitution Act, the whole Constitution Act, because in the Constitution Act, remember, was also, we patriated it. In other words, we don't have to go back to England. We became right. a sovereign nation in every way, shape or form by mm -hmm. 1982. Mm -hmm. And there were uh, provisions in there to strengthen the natural resource jurisdiction of the provinces. There were provisions in there as it relates to the rights of Aboriginal peoples and who are Aboriginal peoples, the Mayday, the Inuit and the Inu of this country. For the first time that was identified, you know, minority language rights. Equalization was put in the constitution. Right. Which right. we pushed for. Newfoundland pushed for. It was because of Newfoundland that that really got in the constitution in those words that has protected Newfoundland and Nova Scotia and BEI Right. And then mm. Quebec and Manitoba for all these years and provided billions and billions of dollars to them because it was constitutionalized and the Canada or the federal government couldn't change it unilaterally. All mm. of that's in the Constitution Act of 1982, plus the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That is a tremendous accomplishment for sure. I, I want to close with just one more question. The question has to do with the fact that you were having a conversation with Jordan Peterson just a little while ago, and you mentioned that your editorials were no longer being picked up or even acknowledged. And uh, that really caused me some concern. I began thinking about, well, what does that tell us about our society? And I'm just wondering what what um, what you think of, of what's happening in Canada right now, that someone of your stature is having a rough time to be able to even... Uh, beyond the Toronto stars and so forth, uh, the national post, how, how come, how did we come to this? And before the pandemic, anytime I would write a letter about Canada, you know, a letter of 800 words or 600 words, whatever they wanted, and they, yep. sometimes they edited it, it would get carried mm. almost every time. They contact me and say, we have your letter just to confirm Mr. Peckford, this is your letter, right? Yeah. This wasn't somebody fabricating your name or whatever. Yeah. And we may have to play around with a little bit, but the substance will be in there. And other times they carried it all as was. Years ago, even the Globe and Mail did that. But mm. the Globe and Mail start, stopped carrying me with any sense years and years ago. But the National Post carried me and carried that whole issue about the Constitution uh, and how it was being, uh, you know, how my role in it was being misused. Uh, and actually, in 2012, when I published my book, they actually had on the front page uh, an article saying that one of the fathers, right, of the of 82 was me.
because they had gone to a professor at Carleton University who had tracked my statements and checked them out and, and went and checked with the other people. And yes, he said, yes, Peckford did have a major role in the formation of, of 1982. That was on the front page of the National Post on the day I produced my book and published it in Newfoundland. Okay. okay. The day after, September the 12th, this was September the 13th, that would have been in the National Post. And then so after the pandemic came and I took a different approach to it, right? And said, you know, these, these are dangerous times if you start to play around with the rights and freedoms in Canada, you better be careful that you can justify what you're doing. They began to ignore my letters, never even acknowledge that I sent them. Meanwhile, they put in a letter by the professor, a good professor, Mm -hmm. at, at Queen's University, who's also defending civil rights, but he thought it was all more or less all over, right? And they were putting in, because the lower courts had ruled, and he said, it looks like, you know, we're on a, we can't win this. And I was there trying to get out of the letter in counteraction to him saying, it's not over, we're only in the second period. We still got the appeal courts, right? right. And, the, and the Supreme Court of Canada here. And it was a letter that was, that met all their requirements, Right. Right. As of a letter, everything was there. They couldn't say I, I broke any rules. Right? right. I used no provocative language, nothing, all very nice language, but did say the good professor uh, is a good man and he does some good work. But on this one, I have to disagree that it's over. Right. We're only in the latter part of the second period and we got a, the whole third period to go because this has to go before the courts of appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada. The decision is not over yet. We don't know what the final ruling will be whether this is constitutional. And, and, and the other press, by the way, the Times colonists used to carry me here on Vancouver Island. And they right. suddenly stopped carrying me. And they used to carry all my stuff. It was amazing. And then, of course, nobody called me. Nobody, they always called me. They always knew I was saying something. They'd call him, you know, the former premier, whatever. And all of a sudden they start calling me. Gary Mason of the Globe and Mail called me for the first time in three years yesterday. And I told him that I could not do an interview with him because he's part of a mainstream media that's on a disservice to the truth. Mm. Right? That was the first time they, he, he, anybody contacted me, the Golden Mail, for years. Right? right. All of a right. sudden now, because I was in Ottawa, and that, that what I might be saying may have a scintilla of truth to it, they're, yeah. almost, they're almost interested in me. So it's a, the press, of course, got $600 million over the last three years from the federal government, which right. the press should have turned down, but they're the ones who asked for it. And the right. federal government was willing to give it to them because they knew by doing that, they would compromise the press in the future right. and what they said about that government. And this is, you know, so we have come down a very sad road where the fourth estate, as they're called, the press, which are supposed to be independent people to, you know, to look with a jaundiced eye upon the governments and what they're doing and give critical analysis, have failed that test very badly now, right? Mm -hmm. And so here we are. Uh, in, in, in 2022, with a press that's compromised, right, with a, with a big pharma which has got billions of dollars, with governments which are too big, right, with a tech industry which is uh, bowing to China and yet are headquartered out of Silicon Valley, running our show. I call it the Four Horsemen. I call it the Four Horsemen. Uh, I, I did a piece a little while ago. You can find it on the... Um, Canadian COVID care alliance, they, they were so impressed with my personal uh, declaration of independence sort of thing, and my right. personal declaration of what was going on. Yeah. I put an addendum to the essay, and I call it the four horsemen, right? Of, right. Of, of, of the modern era, you know, the big government, the big farmer, the big tech, and the big press, right? right? And how they have sort of captured the minds of the populace 
to to the injury of our constitution. You know, Mr. Peckford, I just want to thank you so very, very much for this opportunity to be able to speak to you. And I want to thank you on behalf of everyone that I know who have been listening to you and indeed on behalf of, of those who have felt they have been not listened to by this current government, uh, by the current situation in which they find themselves, to have someone of your stature to be able to speak out for them. I just want to thank you for them, and I want to thank you for being such a student of history, a student of the law, a student of politics, and um, indeed, it's been a great privilege to be able to speak to you, uh, to be able to speak to one of my heroes uh, growing up in Newfoundland, and so it's been a, a tremendous blessing for me, and thank you. I said to some people yesterday on a similar kind of broadcast in another part of Canada, whose whose commitment I kept like I'm keeping yours that I came from rural Newfoundland and I appreciate small as being important as well as big being important and therefore that's one reason why I did this today with you because I wanted you to know and I want your people to know who who uh, who listen to this and view this that I have not changed that I understand I've done, most of my speeches have been in churches up and down Vancouver Island because they're close enough. I can, I can travel to them, right? right? I can't get on a plane because I'm not vaccinated and right. therefore I can't do these long distance things and come back quickly. Otherwise I would be doing them too. Right. But I have been having most of my public meetings, all of which have been uh, overcrowded, too many there and had mm -hmm. to stand outside in churches, in small churches. And it's been amazing to see how the Christians of Canada, especially the more evangelical Christians, come forward mm -hmm. and understand what rights and freedoms are all about. Right. And that's one thing about Christianity. The individual has always been important, right? Extremely. Go going back to Jesus, right? The right. individual, right. going back to the individual prophets that right. have been big leaders in, in the Bible, right? The Jewish Bible and the, and the Christian Bible have been a very important part of the history of Christianity. And, and, and the history of most religions, uh, the individual. And when I say at meetings, you'll really appreciate this. When I say at meetings, I'm standing up before uh, teenagers, babies, uh, senior citizens, right? Middle-aged yeah, people, yeah. all they're packed into this church, lying down on the floor, lying on the aisles, right? Up on the aisles because there's nowhere for them to sit, up in the galleries. And I say the following, every snowflake is different. And every individual is different. Mm. And you have a unique place on this soil, on this planet, in this country, in this municipality. You are important. That's why we have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms, to protect the individual rights and freedoms for you. Because you are important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very well said. And thank you so very, very much. It's been a great pleasure. It's pleasure's been all mine. I really <laughs> love your questions and your commentary. I I honor you today. Well, thank you. Thank you so very much. I, I really appreciate it. God bless. God bless you. You know, I just want to take a few moments to thank you for watching this interview that I had with the Honorable Brian Peckford, former Newfoundland and Labrador Premier. You heard a man who speaks with passion, who speaks with conviction, and who speaks 
with integrity. He has single-handedly, because of his stature, made it very clear that this country is in a serious state of affairs at the moment. We are in, in essence, a state of emergency from coast to coast to coast. And he is calling out the powers that be. He's calling out the authority of the prime minister's office that has, over time, taken up more and more and more power. And it seems to me that as Canadians, we need to seriously look at how we are running our country. How is it that the prime minister's office has so much power? It is not even in the Constitution itself. It has kind of morphed into this uh, situation that we now find ourselves. That needs to change. And I think it's going to be up to you as fellow Canadians to speak out and to say enough is enough. We need to have a prime minister's office that is answerable to the legislature, that is answerable to the people. We no longer need to have prime ministers who are acting as if they are monarchs. The time has come. The time has come for Canadians to take very seriously the kind of country we want to live in. Do we want to live in a country where ideology of the prime minister becomes the ideology that's the only one that's going to be accepted, where freedom of speech is being curtailed, where freedoms of mobility, freedom of protest, freedom to be able to express who you are and what you are. And it seems to me that now we need to seriously evaluate what's happening to this country. We have seen it exposed in spades throughout the last couple of weeks. We've seen a situation where comments are being made, derogatory statements inflaming the situation instead of taking a more moderate course Instead, we have seen the enactment of the Emergencies Act. Is this Canada? Is this the Canada that you would want to leave for your children and your children's children? The time is now for us to begin evaluating exactly what kind of a country we want to live in. Here at First Freedoms, we take our responsibilities very seriously. And we rely on your support, on your support to help us to be able to spread the word that there are indeed first freedoms, just as Premier Peckford just mentioned, that it is the inalienable rights, the freedom of speech, the freedom of conscience, the inviolability of the person. The state does not own us. We are individuals, as he so rightly pointed out. I encourage you to join us. Join us as never before, because if there's ever been a time for an organization like First Freedoms to exist, it is now. And if it is ever a time that you could get behind us and support us, it is now. We need your support. This is urgent business. This is business that cannot wait any longer. So if you've been sitting on the fence wondering what you can do, one of the things you can do is you could sign up for our newsletter, but also support us. Support us financially. We need to help. We need to be able to get the message out there that as human beings, we have inalienable rights that no government, no prime minister, no state can take away. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. 
the fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians at firstfreedoms.ca.